Hello, dear listeners. I'm Angela Veneziano, and this is Passive Listening for Active Minds, a podcast of simple pleasures as I share some of my favorite poetry, prose, essays, and stories with you while you can relax and enjoy the imagery come to mind. Please subscribe if you like our podcast and share links with everyone you know. We're on all the major and some rather minor podcast sites and apps. Spotify, for example. Hit that subscribe button. Do me a favor. Okay, let's get started, listeners. Welcome to Passive Listening for Active Minds. I'm Angela Veneziano, and I have something special for you. I'm going to start some longer episodes where I continue reading from the same novel, um, until we've finished it because it's this is such a good book and I recently read it and loved it and I'm secretly reading it because uh, for you because I would love someone to talk about it with and I tried to give it to my son for his birthday and he still hasn't gotten to it yet so I'm secretly hoping that eventually I can at least get him to listen to it maybe on our way to uh, our vacation this summer when we're on the airplane he can have a good listen because I think he'll love it. But lately he hasn't been that into reading and I'm hoping to reignite that spark with some good science fiction because science fiction is something that um, all the nerds in my family have proudly in common. Now this science fiction marvel is um, copyrighted 2015 and it's by Neil Stevenson. The book is called Seven Eves. He, it was printed in the United States of America. And I have to say, uh, HarperCollins as the publishers of this book, yeah, they did a wonderful job. And Neil Stevenson, uh, after I re- read this, I've, I'm in a big hurry to look for more from him because he's very, very great at writing science fiction. I hope that this won't disappoint you. And let's begin with episode one of Neil Stephenson's Seven Eves. The Seven Sisters. Rufus McQuarrie saw it all happen above the Black Ridge line of the Brooks Range in northern Alaska. Rufus operated a mine there. On clear nights, he would drive his pickup truck to the top of a mountain that he and his men had spent the day hollowing out. He would take his telescope, a twelve-inch cassegrain, out of the back of the truck and set it up on the summit and look at the stars. When he got ridiculously cold, he would retreat into the cab of his truck, he kept the engine running, and hold his hands over the heater vents until his fingers regained feeling. Then, as the rest of him warmed up, he would put those fingers to work, communicating with friends, family, and strangers all over the world, and off it. After the moon blew up, and he convinced himself that what he was seeing was real, he fired up an app that showed the positions of various natural and man-made celestial bodies. He checked the position of the International Space Station. It happened to be swinging across the sky, 260 miles above and 2,000 miles south of him. He pulled the contraption onto his knee. 
he had made it in his little machine shop. It consisted of a telegraph key that looked to be about 150 years old, mounted on a contoured plastic block that strapped to his knee with a hook and loop. He began to rattle off dots and dashes. A whip antenna was mounted to the bumper of his pickup truck, reaching for the stars. 260 miles above and 2,000 miles south of him, the dots and dashes came out of a pair of cheap speakers zip-tied to a conduit in a crowded, can-shaped module that made up part of the International Space Station. Bolted to one end of the ISS was the yam-shaped asteroid called Amothea. In the unlikely event that it could have been brought gently to Earth and laid to rest on a soccer field, it would have stretched from one penalty box to the other and completely covered the center circle. It had floated around the sun for four and a half billion years, invisible to the naked eye and to astronomers' telescopes, even though its orbit had been similar to that of Earth. In the classification system used by astronomers, this meant that it was called the an Arjuna asteroid. Because of their near-Earth orbits, Arjunas had a high probability of entering the Earth's atmosphere and slamming into inhabited places. But, by the same token, they were also relatively easy to reach and latch onto. For both those reasons, bad and good, they drew the attention of astronomers. Amalthea had been noticed five years earlier by a swarm of telescope-wielding satellites sent out by Arjuna Expeditions, a Seattle-based company funded by tech billionaires for the express purpose of asteroid mining. It had been identified as dangerous, with a 0.01% probability of striking the Earth within the next hundred years, and so another swarm of satellites had been sent up to drop a bag over it and drag it into a geocentric, Earth rather than sun-centered, orbit, which had then been gradually matched with that of ISS. In the meantime, the planned expansion of the ISS had plotted onward. New modules, inflatables, and air-filled tin cans sent up on rockets had been added to the space station at both ends. At the forward end, the space station's nose, if you thought of it as a vaguely bird-shaped object flying around the world, a home was prepared for Amothea and for the asteroid mining research project that was planned to grow up around it. Meanwhile, at the aft end, a torus, a donut-shaped habitat about 40 meters in diameter, was constructed and made to spin like a merry-go-round, creating a small amount of simulated gravity. At some point during these improvements, people had stopped calling it the International Space Station, or ISS, and began referring to the old girl as Izzy. Coincidentally or not, this moniker had become popular around the time that each of the station's two ends had come under the management of a woman. Dinah McQuarrie, the fifth child and only daughter of Rufus, was responsible for much of what went on in Izzy's forward end. Ivy Shaw had overall command of ISS and tended to operate out of the Taurus at its stern. During most of Dinah's waking hours, she was at the forward end of Izzy in a small workspace, my shop, 
where she could look out a small quartz window at Amalthea, my girlfriend. Amalthea was nickel and iron, heavy elements that had probably sunk to the hot center of an ancient planet long since blown apart by some primordial catastrophe. Other asteroids were made of lighter materials, in the same way that Amalthea's Earth-like orbit had made her both a dire threat and a promising candidate for exploitation, her dense metallic constitution had made her a bitch to move around the solar system, but a rewarding object of study. Some asteroids were made largely of water, which could be hoarded for consumption by humans or split into hydrogen and oxygen for fuel rockets. To fuel rockets. Others were rich in precious metals that could be returned to Earth and sold. A lump of nickel and iron like Amalthea could be smelted into structural materials for the construction of orbiting space habitats. Doing so on anything more than a small pilot scale would require the development of new technology. Using human miners was out of the question, since sending them up to orbit and keeping them alive was expensive. Robots were the obvious solution. Dinah had been sent up to Izzy to lay groundwork for a robot laboratory that would eventually host a staff of six. The budget wars in Washington had reduced that number to one, which was how she actually liked it. She had grown up in remote places, following her father Rufus, her mother Catherine, and her four brothers to a series of hard rock mines in places like the Brooks Range of Alaska, the Karoo Desert of South Africa, and the Pilbara of Western Australia. Her accent betrayed traces of all those places. She'd been homeschooled by her parents and a series of tutors they'd flown in, none of whom had lasted more than a year. Catherine had taught her the finer points of piano playing and napkin folding, and Rufus had taught her mathematics, military history, Morse code, bush piloting, and how to blow things up, all by the age of twelve, when, by family voice vote over dinner, she had been deemed too smart and too much of a handful for life at the minehead. She had been sent off to boarding school on the east coast of the United States. For her family, though she'd never had an inkling of it until then, was well off. At school she had developed into a gifted soccer player and parlayed this talent into an athletic scholarship to Penn. During her sophomore year, she had blown out her right ACL, terminating her serious athletic career, and turned her attention, in a more serious way, to the study of geology. That, plus a three-year relationship with a boy who liked to build robots, combined with her background in the mining industry, had made her into the perfect candidate for, a job, for the job she had now, working hand-in-glove with robot geeks on terra firma, a mixture of university researchers, freelance members of the hacker-maker community, and paid Arjuna expedition staff. She programmed, tested, and evaluated a menagerie of robots, ranging in size from cockroach to cocker spaniel, all adapted for the task of crawling around on the surface of Amalthea, analyzing its mineral composition, cutting bits off, and taking them to smelter that, like everything else up here, was specially adapted to work in the environment of space. 
The ingots of steel that emerged from this device were barely large enough to serve as paperweights, but they were the first such things made off-world, and right now they were weighing down important papers on billionaires' desks all over Silicon Valley, worth far more as conversation pieces and status symbols than as commodities. Rufus, a die-hard ham radio enthusiast who still communicated in Morse code with a dwindling circle of old friends all over the world, had pointed out that radio transmission between the ground and Izzy was actually rather easy, given that it was a line of sight, at least when Izzy happened to be passing overhead, and that the distance was nothing by ham radio standards. Since Dinah lived and worked in a robot workshop, Surrounded by soldering gear and electronics workbenches, it had been a simple matter for her to assemble a small transceiver following specifications provided by her dad. Zip-tied to a bulkhead, it dangled above her workstation, making a dim static hiss that was easily drowned out by the normal background roar of the space station's ventilation systems. Sometimes it would beep. A spacewalker gazing at Dinah's end of Izzy, a few minutes after the agent had fractured the moon, would have seen, first of all, Amothea, a huge gnarled twist of metal, still dusty in some places with space debris that had fallen into its evanescent gravitational field over the eons, gleaming in others where it had been rubbed clean. Scurrying over its surface was a score of different robots, belonging to four distinct species. One, that looked like a snake, one that picked its way along like a crab, one that looked like a sort of rolling geodesic dome, and another that looked like a swarm of insects. These provided sporadic illumination from the blue and white LEDs that Dinah used to track them, from the lasers with which they scanned Amalthea's surface, and from the blinding arcs of purplish light with which they would sometimes slice into it. Izzy was then in Earth's shadow, on the night side of the planet, and so all was dark otherwise, except for white light spilling out from the, the little quartz window beside Dinah's workstation. This was barely large enough to frame her head. She had straw-colored hair cut short. She had never been especially appearance-conscious. Back at the minehead, her brothers had mocked her to shame whenever she experimented with clothes or cosmetics. When she'd been described as a tomboy in a school yearbook, she had interpreted it as a sort of warning shot and had gone into a somewhat more girly phase that had run its course during her late teens and early twenties and ended when she'd started to worry about being taken seriously in engineering, in engineering meetings. Being on Izzy meant being on the Internet, doing everything from painstakingly scripted NASA PR interviews to candid Facebook shots posted by fellow astronauts. She had grown tired of the poofy floating hair of zero gravity, and after a few weeks of clamping it down with baseball caps, had figured out how to make this shorter cut work for her. The haircut had spawned terabytes of internet commentary from men and a few women who apparently had nothing else to do with their time. As usual, she was focused on the screen of her computer, which was covered with lines of code governing the behavior of her robots. Most software developers had to write code, compile it into a program, 
and then run the program to see whether it was working as intended. Dinah wrote code, beamed it into the robot scurrying around on Amothea's surface a few meters away, and stared out the window to see whether it was working. The ones closest to the window tended to get most of her attention, and so there was a kind of natural selection at work, in that the robots that huddled closest to their mother's cool blue-eyed gaze acquired the most intelligence, while the ones wandering around loose on the dark side never got any smarter. At any rate, her focus was either on the screen or on the robots, and so it had been for many hours, until a string of beeps came out of the hissing speaker zip-tied to the bulkhead, and her eyes went momentarily out of focus as her brain decoded the dots and dashes into a string of letters and numbers, her father's call sign. Not now, Pa, she muttered, with a guilty daughter's glance at the brass and oak telegraph key he had given her, a Victorian relic purchased at a great price on eBay during a bidding war that had placed Rufus into pitched battle against a host of science museums and interior decorators. Look at the moon. Not now, Pa. I know the moon's pretty. I'm right in the middle of debugging this method, or what used to be it. Huh? And then she brought her face close to the window and twisted her neck to find the moon. She saw what used to be it, and the universe changed. His name was Dubois Jerome Xavier Harris, Ph.D. The French first name came from his Louisiana ancestors on his mother's side. The Harrises were Canadian blacks whose ancestors had come up to Toronto during slavery. Jerome and Xavier were the names of saints, two of them just to be on the safe side. <laughs> the family straddled the border in the Detroit-Windsor area. Inevitably, he had been dubbed Doob by his friends at school when they had still been too young to understand that Doobie was slang for a marijuana cigarette. The overwhelmingly majority of people called him Doc Dubois now because he was on TV a lot, and that was how the talk show hosts and the network anchormen introduced him. His job on TV was to explain science to the general public and, as such, to act as a lightning rod for people who could not accept all the things that science implied about their worldview and their way of life, and who showed a kind of harebrained ingenuity in finding new ways to refute it. In academic settings, such as when he was keynoting astronomical meetings and writing papers, he was, of course, Dr. Harris. The moon blew up while he was attending a fundraising reception in the courtyard of the Caltech Athenaeum. At the beginning of the evening, it was a fiercely cold, bluish-white disk rising above the Chino Hills. Lay observers would fancy it a good night for moon-watching, at least by Southern California standards. But Dr. Harris's professional eye saw a thin border of fuzz around its rim and knew that aiming a telescope at it would be pointless, at least if the objective were to do science. Public relations was another matter. Operating more into his Dr. Dubois persona, 
he occasionally organized star parties where amateur astronomers would set their telescopes up in Eaton Canyon Park and aim them at crowd-pleasing targets, such as the moon, the rings of Saturn, and the moons of Jupiter. Tonight would be a fine night for that. But that wasn't what he was doing. He was drinking good red wine with rich persons, mostly from the tech industry, and being Doc Dubois, the affable science popularizer of television and of four million Twitter followers. Doc Dubois knew how to size up his audience. He knew that self-made tech zillionaires liked to argue, that Pasadena aristocracy didn't, and that society wives liked to be lectured to as long as the lectures were brief and funny. And he knew that his job was to charm these people, nothing more, so that they could later be handed off to professional fundraisers. He was going back to the bar for another glass of the Pinot Noir, fully in the Doc Dubois persona, slapping shoulders and bumping fists and exchanging grins, when a man gasped. Everyone looked at him. Dub was afraid that the poor guy had been struck by a stray bullet or something. He was frozen, poised on one leg, gazing up. A woman followed his gaze and screamed. And Doob became one of perhaps a few million people around the dark half of the planet, all looking up into the sky, in a state of shock so profound as to shut off the parts of the brain responsible for higher functions like talking. His first thought, given that they were in greater Los Angeles, was that they were looking at a black projection screen that had been stealthily hoisted into the air above the neighboring property and were seeing a Hollywood special effect thrown into it by a concealed projector. Not, no one had informed him that any such stunt was underway, but perhaps it was some incredibly bizarre fundraising gambit or part of a movie production. When he came to his senses, he was aware that a large number of telephones were singing their little electronic songs, including his. The birth of a new age. The birth cry of a new age. The birth cry of a new age. Ivy Show was in overall command of Izzy and spent almost all of her time in the Taurus, partly because her office was there and partly because she was more susceptible to space sickness than she liked to admit. That physical separation. Ivy backed in the Taurus. Dinah up in the forward end, close to the Amalthea, was symbolic, in many people's minds, of a difference between them that didn't really exist. Other contrasts were obvious, though. Beginning with the physical, Ivy was four inches taller, with long black hair that she kept under control, usually by braiding it and trapping the braid under the collar of her jumpsuit. She had the build of a volleyball player, Raised in Los Angeles, the only child of high-strung parents, Ivy had SAT'd, science-fared, and spiked her way to Annapolis, then followed that up with a Ph.D. in applied physics from Princeton. Only then had the Navy demanded the years of service that she had owed it in return for her tuition. After learning how to pilot helicopters, she had spent most of that time in the astronaut program, in whose ranks she had risen quickly. 
Unlike most astronauts, who were mission specialists, scientists, or engineers carrying out specific tasks after the launch vehicle had reached orbit, Ivy, with her training as a pilot, was a flight specialist as well, meaning that she knew how to fly rockets. The days of the space shuttle were long over, so there was no need to joystick a winged vehicle back to a runway, but the docking and maneuvering spacecraft in orbit was a good clean match for someone with the motor control of a chopper pilot and the mathematical mind of a physicist. The pedigree was intimidating, even off-putting, to people who were impressed by such things. Dinah, who wasn't, cared little one way or the other. Her informal behavior toward Ivy was interpreted by some observers as disrespectful. Two very different women in conflict with each other made for more dramatic story than what was actually true. They were continually bemused by the efforts made by Izzy personnel and their handlers on the ground to heal the non-existent rift between them, or what was a lot less funny, to exploit it in the pursuit of Byzantine political schemes. Four hours after the moon blew up, Dinah and Ivy and the other ten crew members of the International Space Station had a meeting in the Banana, which was what they called the longest uninterrupted section of the spinning torus. Most of the torus was chopped into segments short enough that the brain could talk, to the eye, talk the eye into believing that the floor was flat and that gravity always pointed in the same direction. But the banana was long enough to make it obvious that the floor was in fact curved through about 50 degrees of arc from one end to the other. Gravity, at one end of it, was aimed in a different direction from that on the other end. Accordingly, the long conference table that ran down its length was curved too. People entering into one end looked uphill to the opposite end, but experienced no sensation of climbing as they moved toward it. New arrivals tended to expect that anything placed elsewhere on the table would roll and slide down toward them. The walls were pale yellow, the usual collection of malfunctioning audiovisual equipment purported to show live video streams of people on the ground, in theory enabling them to teleconference with colleagues in Houston, Belkinor, or Washington. When the meeting began at A plus O point O point O four, zero years, zero days, and four hours since the agent had acted upon the moon, nothing was working, and so the occupants of Izzy had a few minutes to talk among themselves while Frank Casper and Jilbran Harnoon wiggled connectors, typed commands into computers, and rebooted everything. Relatively new arrivals to Izzy, Frank and Jibran had made the mistake of letting on that they were go good at that sort of thing, so they always got saddled with it. Both of them were more comfortable with it anyway than, making with, than with making chit-chat. Primordial singularity were the first words Dinah heard upon gliding into the room. Gravity here was only one-tenth of that on Earth, and walking wasn't the right word for how people moved around. It was halfway between that and flying, a sort of long, bounding gait. The words had been spoken by Conrad Barth, a German astronomer, it was clear from how the others reacted that Ivy, who was sitting directly across the table from him, 
was the only other person in the banana who had the faintest idea what he was talking about. And that is? Dinah asked, since that sort of thing had become her role. Others tended to be so worshipful of Ivy, or so reluctant to show ignorance, that they wouldn't ask. A small black hole? Why primordial? Most black holes are formed when stars collapse, Ivy said, but there's a theory that some of them were created shortly after the Big Bang. The universe was lumpy. Some of the lumps might have been dense enough to undergo gravitational collapse. They could form black holes that, instead of weighing what a star weighs, could be a lot smaller. How small? I don't think there's a lower limit, but the point is that one of them could zip through space invisibly and punch all the way through a planet and out the other side. There used to be a theory that the Tunguska event was caused by one, but it's been disproved. Dinah knew about that, because her dad liked to talk about it. A huge explosion, explosion in Siberia a hundred, a hundred years ago that had knocked down millions of trees out in the middle of nowhere. That was a big deal, Dinah said, but not enough to blow up the moon. To blow up the moon would take a bigger one going faster, Ivy said. Look, it's just a hypothesis. But it's gone now? It would be long gone now, like a bullet through an apple. It struck Dinah as odd that they were talking about such an event so matter-of-factly, but there was no other way to address it. Emotions were not large enough to encompass such a thing. Besides, it was just a visual effect so far, like something seen in a movie with the sound turned off. "'Is it going to affect the tides?' asked Lena Ferriera. "'As a marine biologist,' Lena would naturally be somewhat concerned about the tides. Since those are caused by the moon's gravity. And by the sun's, Ivy added with a nod and a little smile, which was why she was in charge of Izzy and Dinah wasn't. She was willing to correct a Ph.D. marine biologist in front of a room full of people, but she could carry it off in a way that didn't sting. But the answer is, probably, surprisingly little. The moon's mass is still all there, close to where it was before. It's just spread out a little. But the pieces still have the same collective center of gravity, still in the same orbit as the moon had before. Your tide tables will still pretty much work. Dinah's facial expression was blank, but she was enjoying Ivy's ability to talk about science with a kind of little nerd girl sense of wonder, even in spite of the disturbing subject matter. This was why all Ivy always got the media interviews, while Dinah had to be dragged out of her den of robots and told over and over again to smile. The tone of voice was a giveaway. When Ivy was giving orders or reading PowerPoint slides, she went clipped and military. But when she talked about science, her face opened up and her voice went into a vaguely Mandarin sing-songy lilt. <clears throat> Where are you getting all of this? Dinah asked drawing startled or disapproving glances from a few who worried that she was being too brusque with the boss. It's only been, what, four hours? There's a lot of noisy comment thread traffic, as you'd expect, and a few ad hoc email lists sort of congealing out of that, Ivy explained. A blue screen appeared on the lightweight monitor stretched above one end of the long table and was replaced by a NASA logo, 
Okay, got it, muttered Gibran, who made a sideways bound toward the chair. Then they were looking at the familiar environs of ISS Flight Control Room, which was at Johnson Space Center in Houston. The director of mission operations was sitting in front of the camera, stroking his iPad. He didn't seem to be aware that the camera was on. A few moments later, they had heard a door open off-camera. The DMO, who was ex-military, stood up out of habit. He reached out and shook hands with a woman who entered from stage right, NASA's deputy administrator, the number two person in the whole org chart, and a rare sight at such meetings. She was a retired astronaut named Oriella McMackey, dressed for business in the environment of D.C., where she spent most of her time. Are we on? she asked someone off camera. Yes, said several people in the banana. Ariella looked a little startled by that. Both she and the DMO were looking a little stunned to begin with, of course. <clears throat> How are you all today? Ariella said in an absolutely rote, business like voice, as if nothing had happened, running on autopilot while her brain caught up with events. Fine, said some people in the banana, mixed in with a few nervous chuckles. I'm sure you are all aware of the event. We have a good view of it, Dinah said. Ivy shot her a warning look. Of course you do, Aurelia admitted. I would love to have an extended conversation with you all about what you have seen and what you are experiencing, but this is going to have to be brief. Robert, the DMO, peeled his eyes off the iPad and sat forward in his chair. We're expecting an increase in the number of rocks floating up around there. He meant loose chunks of the moon. Not huge, because most will be gravitationally bound, but some may have escaped. So other missions are suspended while you batten down the hatches. Make preparations for impacts. Everyone in the banana listened silently, thinking about what that would mean for them. They would tighten precautions, dividing Izzy up into separate compartments so the damage to one wouldn't suck the air from all. They would review procedures. Lena's biology experiments might take a hit. Dinah's robots would enjoy a holiday. Aurelia spoke into the camera. All spaceflight operations are suspended until further notice. No one is coming up and no one is going down. Everyone in the banana looked at Ivy. As soon as they got into Ivy's tiny office, where she felt it was okay to let the tears come to into her eyes, they slipped into their Q-code. Q-codes were ham radio slang. Dinah had learned them from Rufus. They were three-letter combinations, beginning with Q. To save time in Morse code transmissions, they were substituted for frequently used phrases such as would you like me to change to a different frequency? Dinah and Ivy's Q codes didn't actually begin with Q, but some of them were three-letter combinations. Uppity Little Shit Kicker was a name that had been hung on Dinah when it had first arrived, she had first arrived at private school and, during a soccer scrimmage, intercepted a pass meant for a girl from New York. Straight Arrow Bitch had been bestowed on Ivy at Annapolis, where she had declined to take part in a drinking game during a tailgate party. 
the ULS, uppity little shit kicker, SAB, straight arrow bitch, dynamic, was a thing that Dinah and Ivy exploited in meetings, even having meetings before meetings to plan how to use it. Good looks wasted, GLW, had found its way to Dinah in the aftermath of her new haircut as the result of an improbable chain of reply-to-all mishaps. She had brought it to Ivy, breathless with excitement, and they had enshrined GLW in their private code book. I forgot, when spoken in breathy little girl voice, was shorthand way of saying, I forgot to put on my makeup, quoted verbatim from a NASA PR flack. S.A.R. was from a tart exchange between Ivy and NASA administrator, who upon reading one of her reports had criticized her for having an almost pathological predilection for unnecessary abbreviations. This had struck Ivy as a bit odd, given that every other word in NASA prose was an acronym. When Ivy had asked for clarification, she had been told that her abbreviations were schoolgirlish and recondite. Space camp, which both Ivy and Dinah had attended as teens, though at different times, was what they called not just Izzy, but the whole subculture of NASA manned spaceflight. What are you going to say to the maternal organism? Dinah asked as Ivy rummaged in the back of a storage bin for her bottle of tequila. Ivy stiffened for a moment, then pulled out the bottle and swung it toward Dinah, Dinah's head like a club. Dinah didn't flinch, just watched it glide to a halt above her head. What? I can't believe that the morgue has so taken over my wedding that the first thing that comes into your mind is how she's going to react. Dinah looked mildly sick. Don't worry about it, Ivy said. You forgot to put on your makeup. Sorry, baby, I was just thinking. You and Cal are still going to get married and have a great life, no matter what. But the morgue is going to take the hit, Ivy said, nodding as she poured tequila into a pair of small plastic cups, having to reschedule everything. Sounds like she's kind of in her element doing that, though, Dinah said, not to minimize it or anything. Totally. To the morgue. To the morgue. Dinah and Ivy tapped their plastic cups together and sipped at the tequila. One of the fringe benefits that came of being in the Taurus was that you could drink normally instead of sucking everything through tubes. The lower gravity took some getting used to, but they were old hands at it by now. "'What's up with your family? Did you hear from Rufus?' Ivy asked. "'My father desires raw data files from Codrad's wide-field infrared observation platform, which he has read about on the Internet, so that he can satisfy his personal curiosity about the thing that hit the moon.' You go into Morse code those down to him? His, inter his internet is working. He's already created an empty Dropbox folder. As soon as I provide him with the files, he'll go back to his usual grousing about how his taxes are too high and federal government needs to be scaled back to a size where he can personally stomp it to death with steel-toed boots. What astronomers didn't know outweighed by an almost infinite ratio what they did and for persons used to a more orderly system of knowledge, with everything on Wikipedia, this created a certain perception of incompetence, 
or at least failure to perform, on the part of the astronomical profession whenever weird things happened in the sky. Which was every day, actually, but most of them could be seen only by astronomers, and so they were able to keep them a sort of trade secret. Latently obvious events, such as a meteorite strikes that caused Doc Dubois' phone to sing, the singing usually portended a series of appearances on talk shows where, among other things, he would be asked to explain why astronomers hadn't predicted this. Why hadn't they seen the meteor coming? Wasn't it just the case that they were a bunch of good-for-nothing propeller heads? A little bit of humility seemed to go a long way, and if the pundits didn't cut him off too soon, he was frequently able to work in a plea for more government support of science. For members of the general, for more gov- the, for members of the general public might not care about Wolf Rayert stars in the quintuplet cluster, but they definitely saw why having hot rocks fall on one's head was a good thing to avoid. He always called it the breakup of the moon, not the explosion. The term began to gain traction on Twitter with hashtag bum, B-U-M, whatever you call it. It was an infinitely bigger deal than a single meteor strike so it seemed to demand more explanation. But there was no way to explain it yet. Meteors were easy. Space was full of rocks too small and dark to be seen through telescopes, and some of them snagged on the atmosphere and fell to the ground. But the breakup of the moon could not have been caused by any normal astronomical phenomenon. So Doc Dubois, who spent most of the next week on camera, got out in front of that issue at every chance, always leading with a frank statement that neither he nor any other astronomer knew the cause. That was the pitch, straight down the middle. Then he added the spin. This is absolutely fascinating. It is, as a matter of fact, the most fascinating scientific event in human history. It looks scary and upsetting, but the fact is that no one has been killed by it, save for a few drivers who swerved off roads or rear-ended stopped traffic while rubbernecking. At A plus 0.4.16, four days and 16 hours after the breakup of the moon, he had to amend no one has been killed when a meteorite, almost certainly a chunk of moon rock, entered the atmosphere over Peru, shattered windows along a 20-mile track, and smashed into a farmstead, obliterating a small family. But the message remained the same. Let's look at this as a scientific phenomenon and start with what we know. His friend was, a, was video streaming. His friend was a video streaming site called Astronomical Bodies, formerly known as TheMoon.com which kept a high-resolution feed of the rubble cloud running around the clock. As soon as possible in interview, Doc Dubois would get that up on screen and then begin making observations about the cloud, because making observations calmed people down. The moon had broken up into seven large pieces, which inevitably became known as the Seven Sisters, and an unaccountable number of smaller ones. Gradually, the big ones acquired names. Doc Dubois was responsible for many of these. He gave them descriptive names that wouldn't scare people. 
it wouldn't do to call them Nemesis or Thor or Grund, so instead it was Potato Head, Mr. Spinny, Acorn, Peach Pit, Scoop, Big Boy, and Kidney Bean. Doc Dubois would point those out and then draw attention to the way they moved. This was governed entirely by Newtonian mechanics. Each piece of the moon attracted every other piece, more or less strongly depending on the mass and its distance. It could be simulated on a computer quite easily. The whole rubble cloud was gravitationally bound. Any shrapnel fast enough to escape had done so already. The rest was drifting around in a loose huddle of rocks. Sometimes they banged into one another. Eventually they would stick together and the moon would begin to reform. Or at least that was the theory, until the star party that they threw in the middle of the Caltech campus at A plus 0.7.0, exactly one week after the event. Normally, they held star parties up in the hills where the seeing was better, but seeing giant rocks close to Earth was so easy that there was no need to go to the trouble of driving into the mountains. It would have undercut the purpose of the event, which was to get as many members of the general public as possible out and in a park-like atmosphere to peer through telescopes and make observations. The Beckman Mall was lined with yellow school buses interspersed here and there with vans from local and network television, their masts deployed so that they could relay live video downtown. Their reporters stood in pools of light, using as backdrop an open green strewn with telescopes of various types and sizes. Little seven-card decks were handed out, each card depicting a different fragment of the moon from various angles and identifying it by its name. Kids were given the assignment to identify each of the rocks through the eyepiece of the telescope, checking it off on a homework sheet, and write down an observation about it. Most of the scopes, obviously, were pointed at the seven sisters, but one contingent was looking at a darker part of the sky with binoculars, or just their naked eyes, expecting to see meteorites. By day seven, several hundred of these had entered the atmosphere, or at least several hundred large enough to be noticed. Most had burned up before hitting the ground. There had been about a score of incidents in which they drew arc-light trails across the sky, illuminating the ground below with freaky bluish radiance and producing huge sonic booms. Half a dozen had struck the ground, doing greater or lesser amounts of damage, the death toll, though, was still far beneath the statistical ground clutter of shark attacks and lightning strikes. The evening went fine. Doob, who had raised three children to adulthood, had figured out a long time ago that any event largely organized by elementary school teachers was likely to come off extremely well from a logistical and crowd control standpoint. So he was able to relax and be doc autographing Seven Sisters cards for kids and occasionally slipping into doc Dr. Harris mode for a discussion with a fellow astronomer. As he wandered about the place, he had three different chance encounters with the same elementary school teacher, one Miss Hinoyosa, Hinoyosa, 
and fell in love with her. This was unusual. He had not been in love with anyone in twelve years. He had been divorced for nine. He found it nearly as shocking in his own way as the breakup of the moon. He tried to deal with it in the same way, by making scientific observations of the phenomenon. His working hypothesis was that the breakup of the moon had made Dube young again, exfoliating layers of emotional callus from his soul and leaving a pink, shiny, impressionable heart just waiting to be colonized by the first appealing woman who came along. He was talking to Amelia, for that, as it turned out, was her first name. When a buzz moved slowly over hit the quad, like a gentle breeze, and caused everyone to look up. Two of the larger pieces, Scoop and Kidney Bean, were headed right for each other. It would not be the first such collision. They happened all the time, but seeing two big chunks heading right for each other with high-closing velocity was unusual and promised a good show. Dube tried to quiet an unsettled feeling in his chest, which might have been caused by what was happening with Amelia or by the natural trepidation that any sane person would feel upon seeing two enormous pieces of rock getting ready to smash into each other directly overhead. The good news was that people were beginning to treat the evolution of the swarm as a kind of spectator sport, to see it as fascinating and fun, not terrifying. Scoop's sharper edge slammed into the divot that gave Kidney Bean its name and split it in half. It all happened, of course, in quiet, super slow motion. And then there were eight, Amelia said. Instinctively, she had turned away from Dube and toward her brood of twenty-two students. What just happened to Kidney Bean? she was asking in that teacherly way, scanning for upraised hands, looking for a kid to call on. Can anyone tell me? The kids were silent and vaguely sick-looking. Amelia held up her kidney bean card and tore it in half. Dr. Harris was walking toward his car. His phone rang, so startling him that he almost swerved into the sco a school bus. What was wrong with him? His scalp was tingling, and he realized it was his, it was his hair's trying to stand up on his head. He checked the screen of the phone and saw that the call was from a colleague in Manchester. He declined to answer it and found himself looking at a new contact that he had been creating for Amelia, a snapshot of her face, just a silhouette in profile against the bank of TV lights, and her phone number. He tapped on the done button. On a safari in Tanzania, and had turned around to see that he was being watched, interestedly, by a group of hyenas. The thing that had scared him hadn't been the hyenas themselves. Those, and even more dangerous animals, were all over the place. Rather, it was the sudden awareness that he had let his guard down, that he had been focusing his attention on the wrong thing while the real danger had been circling around behind him. He had wasted a week on the fascinating scientific puzzle of what blew up the moon. That had been a mistake.
scouts. We need to stop asking ourselves what happened and start talking about what is going to happen, Dr. Harris said to the President of the United States, her science advisor, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and about half of the Cabinet. He could see that the President didn't like this. Julia Bliss Flaherty, currently nearing the end of her first year on that job. The chairman of the JCS was nodding, but President Flaherty was giving him a hard, squinting look, and not just because of the light coming in the window from the skies over Camp David. She thought he was up to something, trying to shift blame, trying to push some kind of new agenda. Go on, she said, then, remembering her manners, Dr. Harris. Four days ago, I watched Kidney Bean break in half, Dube said. The seven sisters became eight. Since then, we've seen a near miss that could have fractured Mr. Spinney. I could almost welcome it. I would almost welcome it, said the President, if we could get rid of those ridiculous names. It'll happen, Dube said. The question is, how long does Mr. Spinney have to live? And what does that tell us? He clicked a small remote in his hand and brought up a slide on the big screen. Heads turned toward it, and he felt a mild sense of relief at not being stared at any more by the president. The slide was a montage of a snowball rolling down a hill, a fuzzy bacterial culture growing in a petri dish, a mushroom cloud, and other seemingly unrelated phenomena. What do these all have in common? They are exponential, he said. The word gets tossed around a lot by people who use it to mean anything that's getting big fast, but it has a specific mathematical meaning. It means any process where the more it happens, the more it happens. The population explosion, a nuclear chain reaction, a snowball rolling down a hill, whose speed of growth is pegged to how much it's grown. He clicked through another slide, showing plots of exponential curves on a graph, then to an image of the moon's eight pieces. When the moon had only one piece, the probability of a collision was zero, he said, because there was nothing to collide with, Pete Starling, the president's science advisor, explained. The president nodded. Thank you, Dr. Starling. When you have two pieces, why then? Yes, they can collide. The more pieces you get, the higher the chances of any two pieces banging into each other. But what happens when they bang into each other? He clicked the control again and showed a little movie of kidney beans breakup. Well, sometimes, but not always, they break in half, which means you have more pieces eight instead of seven, nine instead of eight, and that increase in number means an increase in the odds of further collision. It's an exponential, said the chairman. It occurred to me four days ago that it did have all the earmarks of an exponential process, Dube allowed, and we know what happens to those. President Flaherty had been watching him intently, but she now flicked her eyes over at Pete Starling, 
who made a dramatic upward zooming gesture with one hand, tracing the profile of a hockey stick. When an ex exponential hits the bend in the hockey stick curve, Dube said, the result can be indistinguishable from a detonation, or it can look like a slow, steady increase. It all depends on the time constant, the inherent speed with which the exponential thing happens, and how we perceive it as humans. So it might be nothing, said the chairman. It could be that a hundred years will pass before we go from eight chunks to nine chunks, Dube said, nodding at him. But four days ago, I got worried that it might be one of those things that looks more like an explosion. So my grad students and I have been crunching some numbers, building a mathematical model of the process so that we can get a handle on the time scale. And what are your results, Dr. Harris? I assume you have some or else you wouldn't be here. The good news is that Earth is one day going to have a beautiful system of rings just like Saturn. The bad news is that it's going to be messy. In other words, said Pete Starling, the chunks of the moon are going to keep banging into each other indefinitely and breaking up into smaller and smaller pieces, spreading out into a system of rings. But some rocks are going to fall on the ground and break things. And can you tell me, Dr. Harris, when this is going to happen? Over what period of time? The president asked. We're still gathering data, tuning the model's parameters, Dube said. So my estimates could be off by a factor of two, maybe three. He clicked through to a new graph. A blue curve showing a slow, steady climb over time. The time scale at the bottom is something like one to three years. During that time, the number of collisions and the number of new fragments are going to grow steadily. What is BFR? asked Pete Starling, for the graph's vertical scale was labeled thus. Bolide fragmentation rate, Dube said, the rate at which new rocks are being produced. Is that a standard term? Pete wanted to know. His tone was not so much hostile as unnerved. No, Dube said. I made it up yesterday, on the plane. He was tempted to add something like, I am allowed to coin terms, but didn't want to get things snarky this early in the meeting. Seeing that Pete had been silenced, at least for a moment, Dube tried to get back into his rhythm. <clears throat> we'll see an increasing number of meteorite impacts. Some will cause great damage. But overall, life is not going to change that much. But then, he clicked again, and the plot bent sharply upward, turning white. We are going to witness an event that I am calling the white sky. It'll happen over hours or days. The system of discrete planetoids that we can see up there now is going to grind itself up into a vast number of much smaller fragments. They are going to turn into a white cloud in the sky, and that cloud is going to spread out. Click. The graph continued shooting upward, rocketing up into a new domain and turning red. A day or two after the white sky event will begin a thing I'm calling the hard rain, because not all of those rocks are going to stay up there. 
Some of them are going to fall into the Earth's atmosphere. He turned the projector off. This was an unusual move, but it snapped them all out of PowerPoint hypnosis and forced them to look at him. The aides in the back of the room were still thumbing their phones, but they didn't matter. By some, Dube said. I mean trillions. The room remained silent. It is going to be a meteorite bombardment such as Earth has not seen in the primordial age. When the solar system was formed, Dube said, those fiery trails we've been seeing in the sky lately as the meteorites come in and burn up, there will be so many of those that they will merge into a dome of fire that will set aflame anything that can see it. The entire surface of the earth is going to be sterilized. Glaciers will boil. The only way to survive is to get away from the atmosphere. Go underground or go into space. Well, obviously that is very hard news if it is true, the president said. They all sat and thought about it silently for a period of time that might have been a minute or five. We will have to do both, the president said. Go into space and underground. Obviously the latter is easier. Yes. We can get to work building underground bunkers for... And she caught herself before saying something impolitic. For people to take refuge in. Dube didn't say anything. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff said, Dr. Harris, I'm an old logistics guy. I deal in stuff. How much stuff do we need to get underground? How many sacks of potatoes and rolls of toilet paper per occupant? I guess what I'm asking is, just how long is the hard rain going to last? Dube said, My best estimate is that it will last somewhere between 5,000 and 10,000 years. None of you will ever stand on terra firma, touch your loved ones, or breathe the atmosphere of your mother planet again, the president said. That is a terrible fate, and yet it is a better fate than seven billion people trapped on the Earth's surface can hope for. The last ship home has sailed. From now on, Launch vehicles will rise up into orbit, but they will not go back for 10,000 years. The 12 men and women in the banana sat in silence. Like the destruction of the moon itself, it was too big a thing for them to take in, too large for human emotion to get around. Dinah focused on trivia, such as just how damaged, just how damned good J.B.F., the president, was at saying stuff like this. <clears throat> Dr. Harris, said Conrad Barth, the astronomer, I am sorry, Madam President, but is it possible to get Dr. Harris back into the picture? Of course, Julia Bliss Flaherty, who, with some reluctance, stepped sideways, making room for the larger frame of Dr. Harris. Dinah thought that he looked shrunken and diminished compared to the famous TV scientist. Then she remembered what he had explained to them a few minutes ago and felt uncharitable for having drawn that comparison. What it must it have been like 
to be the only man on earth to know that the earth was doomed. Yes, Conrad, he said. Dube, I'm not disagreeing with your calculations, but has this been peer-reviewed? Is there a chance that there is some basic error, a misplaced decimal point, something? Harris had begun nodding his head halfway through Conrad's question. It was not a happy kind of nod. Conrad, he said, it's not just me. We have signals, intelligence signals, suggesting that the Chinese figured it out a day before we did, the president said, and the British, the Indians, the French, Germans, Russians, Japanese, all of their scientists are coming to more or less the same conclusions. Two years? Diana piped up. Her voice was hoarse, broken. Everyone looked at her. Until the white sky? People seemed to be converging on that figure, yeah. Dr. Harris said. Twenty-five months, plus or minus two. I know this is a terrible shock for all of you, said the president, but I wanted the crew of the ISS to be among the first to know about it because I need you. We, the people of the United States and of Earth, need you. For what? Dinah asked. In no sense was she the official spokesman for the Izzy's crew of twelve. That was Ivy's job. But Dinah could tell, just from looking at her, that Ivy was in no condition to speak. We are beginning to talk to our counterparts in other spacefaring nations about creating an ark, the president said, a repository of the entire genetic heritage of the earth. We have two years to build it. Two years to get as many people and as much equipment as we can into orbit. The nucleus of that arc is going to be Izzy. Absurdly, Dinah felt a mild flicker of annoyance that JBF had appropriated their informal term for the ISS. But she knew how it was. She had spent enough time with the NASA PR people to understand. Things had to be humanized, to be given cute names. All the terrified kids down there who knew they were going to die would have to watch upbeat videos about how Izzy was going to carry the legacy of the dead planet through the hard rain. They would take out their crayons and draw cartoon pictures of Izzy with a Taurus halo and a big rock on her ass and a little anthropomorphic smiley face on the side of this Festus service molly jewel. Ivy spoke up for the first time in a while. A mere... Two weeks ago, the postponement of her wedding had seemed a big disappointment, but she had just been told that her fiancé, U.S. Navy Commander Cal Blankenship, was a dead man walking, and that she would never marry him, never touch him, never see him again except through a video link. To say nothing of everyone else she knew, she looked a little spacey. She was talking in her sing-songy voice. Madam President, she said, I'm sure you know that there isn't much space up here to accommodate new people. I'm sure this must be a topic of discussion. Yes, of course, the President said. Your job is to... Pardon me, Madam President, can I take this? Dr. Harris asked. <clears throat> Dinah noted the flick of the President's eyes, the look of shock on her face. The President of the United States have just been interrupted. 
shouldered out of the way as a woman who had made her way up in the world. She probably had some raw nerve endings around that sort of thing. But this wasn't that. It wasn't JBF asking herself, Did he interrupt me because I'm a woman? They were past all of that now. This was her asking herself, Did he interrupt me because the President of the United States doesn't matter anymore? Is Lena up there? Dr. Harris asked. Pan the camera around, please. Ah, there you are, Lena. I have read your articles about the swarming behaviors of fish in the Caribbean. Great stuff. I didn't know your interests extended to things underwater, said Lena Ferreira. Ferreira, thank you. People were funny, Dinah thought, talking like this at a time like this. The videos are amazing. They all move in tight formation until the predator comes through. Then, suddenly, a hole just opens up in the swarm, and the predator sails through it and doesn't catch a single fish. A moment later, they're back together again. Well, nothing's been decided yet, but... You want to use swarming behavior in the ark? The proposal is called the cloud ark. The president cut back in. And you have it correct. Rather than putting all our eggs in one basket... Eggs and sperm, Gibran muttered in his Lancashire accent, so low that only Dinah picked it up. We will take a distributed architecture, J.B.F. said, with perhaps too careful enunciation, as if she had learned the phrase ten minutes ago. Each of the ships that will make up the cloud arc will be autonomous to an extent. We will mass-produce them, I'm told, and send them up just as fast as we can. They will swarm around Izzy. When it is safe to do so, they can dock together, like tinker toys, and people can move from one to the other freely. But when a rock approaches, whoosh, and she spread her fingers apart, the purple, purple lacquered nails darting away from one another. But what about Izzy? Dinah wondered. She thought better of asking just now. In order to make ready for that, there are tasks for all of you, the president said, and that is why I asked the director to join us on this call, meaning... Scott Spaulding, the director of NASA. I'm going to turn it over to Sparky so that he can walk you through the details. As you can imagine, I have some other concerns to look after, and so I'm going to bid you guys goodbye at this point. The Twelve in the Banana mustered a low murmur of thanks to usher the president out of whatever conference room this tr transmission was coming from. Someone torqued the camera around until it was pointing at Scott Spaulding. He had managed to find a blazer, but he was tieless, and probably would be for the remainder of his life. As a young astronaut, Sparky had been slated for the Apollo mission that had been cancelled during the budget cutbacks of the early 1970s. He had stuck with the program, getting his Ph.D. during the hiatus and manned spaceflight that followed. His run of bad luck had continued when a planned mission on Skylab was scrubbed because of the spacecraft's untimely descent into the atmosphere. His perseverance had paid off in the 1980s with a series of shuttle missions that had turned him into a past master of the astronaut corps, equally at home fixing busted solar panels and quoting the poetry of Rainier Maria Rilke after a couple of decades working at tech startups with varying levels of success He'd been brought back to NASA a few years ago as part of some dim, dimly conceived repurposings of the agency's mission. 
most of the people in the banana found him likable, if somewhat opaque, and had the general feeling that he would back them up in a pinch. Exactly what Rilke poems Sparky thought could address the world's current predicament, it was impossible to guess. For a moment there, after the camera swung round to autofocus on his sagging, increased face, it almost seemed like some poetry might be on the tip of his tongue. Then he shook it off and found the camera's lens with his pale eyes. Words fail me, he said. So I'm just going to concentrate on business. <clears throat> Ivy, <clears throat> you remain in charge. There is no one better. Your job is to keep things running up there. Communicate with us down here and let us know what you need. If, after all of that, you find yourself with some free time, let me know and I'll find you a hobby, he winked. And from there, he went down the list. Frank Casper, a Canadian electrical engineer, and Spencer Grind Grindstaff, an American who specialized in communications and who had been doing mysterious work for intelligence agencies, were going to work on establishing the network infrastructure needed to support the activities of the cloud arc. Gibran, an instrumentation specialist who was always getting roped into such problems anyway, would work with them. Theodore Pantillamon, their grizzled spacewalk specialist, and Zeke Peterson, a more boyish-looking American Air Force pilot who also had many hours of experience in spacesuits, would begin preparing for the arrival of the new modules that, they were assured, were being designed and built with un-NASA-like haste and would begin arriving at Izzy in less than a month. Dinah found that time estimate to be ludicrously optimistic until she remembered that essentially all the world's resources were being thrown at this. Conrad Barth was simply asked to stay on after the meeting for a talk with Dube. It was obvious enough that he would soon be repurposing every astronomical gadget on the space station to the problem of looking for incoming rocks. This was a topic no one wanted to dwell on. If Izzy got hit by a rock of any size, it was all over. In that sense, there really was no point in talking about it. The life scientists were Lena Ferriera, Margaret Cochlin, an Australian woman studying the effects of spaceflight on the human body, and June Ueda, a Japanese biophysicist running some lab experiments about the effects of cosmic rays on living tissues. Also, in that general category was Marco Aldebrani, an Italian engineer who focused on the more practical matter of running the life support systems that kept the rest of them alive. Of those four, Lena already had a special status in that she had actually done work on swarming. It wasn't that closely related to what she'd been doing on the space station, but now she was going to have to dust it off and make it her life's work. Sparky gave her carte blanche to hole up in a quiet place and cram her brain with papers on the topic for a little while, getting back up to speed. Margaret and June were told to put their more abstract research work on out the airlock and work under Marco on readying Izzy for a large expansion in population. That covered eleven of the twelve. So far, 
Sparky hadn't said a word to Dinah. Meetings had never been her strong suit. She felt like she was playing an away game whenever she sat down in a conference room. Her awareness of this got in the way and turned into a self-fulfilling prophecy. It had always been thus. The fact that the world was ending changed nothing. As Sparky kept ticking down the list, telling each person what they would be doing in the coming weeks, she kept feeling more and more the point of focus precisely because she hadn't been focused on yet. And when it became clear that she was last on Sparky's list, she had a good long while as he talked to Margaret and June and Marco to wonder what that meant. Being Dinah, her first assumption was that she was, being, she was considered so important that she was being saved for last. But by the time Sparky finally spoke her name, she had arrived at a different guess as to what was happening. Her heart was already thumping and her pinkies tingling, her tongue bulky in her mouth. Dinah, Sparky said, you're indispensable. She knew exactly what this meant in meeting speak. They would put her out the airlock if they could. You have such a wide range of capabilities and we all admire your attitude so much. Sparky hadn't said a word to anyone else about their attitude. Obviously, asteroid mining, which you've devoted so much of your career to, is a project with a long-term payoff. But we are in short-term mode now. Of course. I'm de detailing you to assist Ivy and look for ways that you can put your amazing skill set to use in supporting the activities of the others. Theodore and Zeke can only go on so many spacewalks. Maybe your robots can be put to use doing things that they can't. As long as it involves cutting through iron, they'll be awesome, Dinah said. Sounds great, Sparky said, missing the sarcasm entirely. In his own mind, he was finished with the conversation, tolerating a few moments' small talk before the after-meeting with Dube and Conrad. Dinah thought better of herself than this. How could she let herself get into this frame of mind at such a time? Because maybe there was actually a good reason for how she was feeling. She was halfway through saying goodbye to Sparky when she pivoted back. Hang on a sec, she said. I respect what you said about short-term mode. I get that. But if or when this cloud arc thing works, you know what's next, right? Sparky was in no mood, not so much annoyed with her as bewildered. What's next? People need a place to live, and if the surface of the earth is going to be burned off, we're going to have to make those living places up here and out of stuff we can get our hands on. Asteroids, of which we have a lot more now, thanks to the agent, Sparky put his hands over his face, exhaled, and sat motionless for about a minute. When he took his hands away, she could see he'd been weeping. I wrote half a dozen goodbye letters to old friends and family before this meeting, he said. And when it's over, I'm going to keep working my way down the list. 
Maybe I'll write half of all the letters I want before their intended recipients get killed by the hard rain. The point being, I guess that I am thinking like the dead man walking that I truly am, which is wrong. I should be thinking about what you are thinking about, the future that you and a few others may look forward to if all of this other stuff works. You really think we're looking forward to it? Sparky winced. Not in the sense of thinking that the future's going to be great, but in the sense of at least thinking about it. I don't disagree with you. But what do you want me to do now? Watch my back, Dinah said. Don't let them ditch Amaltea. Don't let them cut up all of my robots for spare parts. You want me to work on other stuff for a while. Fine. But when the sky turns white and the hard rain begins to fall, the cloud arc needs to have a viable program for making things out of asteroids, or else there's no way people are going to stay alive up here for thousands of years. I have your back, Dinah, said Sparky. For what that's worth, I have your back. And his eyes strayed in the direction of the door through which the president had exited. At A plus zero, the twelve-person crew of the International Space Station had included only a single Russian, Lieutenant Colonel Fyodor Antonovich Pantelimion, a 55-year-old veteran of six missions and 18 spacewalks, the eminence grudice of the cosmonaut corps. This was unusual. In the early years, out of ISS's usual crew of six, at least two had been normally cosmonauts. The addition of Project Amaltea and of the Taurus had expanded the station's maximum capacity to 14, and the number of Russians had typically varied between two and five. The moon had disintegrated only weeks, only two weeks before Ivy, Conrad, and Lena had been scheduled to return home to be replaced by two more Russians and a British engineer. Since that rocket and its crew were ready to go anyway, Roscosmos, the Russian space agency, went ahead and launched it from the Balkinor Cosmodrome on A plus 0.17. The Soyuz spacecraft docked at Izzy's hub module without incident. Unlike Americans who liked flying things by hand, the Russians had made docking into an automated process a long time ago. The Soyuz, the workhorse for decades of human space launch, was a stack of three modules. At its aft end was a mechanical section containing engines, propellant tanks, photovoltaic panels, and other equipment that didn't require an atmosphere. Its forward section was a more or less spherical vessel meant to be pressurized with breathable air and containing enough empty space for cosmonauts to move around, work, and live. In the middle was a smaller, bell-shaped section, containing three couches where the space-suited occupants would ride into space and later descend back to Earth, clothed, cloaked in a fiery comet tail. Accommodations in that section were extremely cramped, 
but it didn't matter since it was only used briefly during launch and re-entry. The orbital module, which was larger, the larger sphere on the front, was where the cosmonauts spent most of their time, and on its nose was the mating contraption that enabled it to connect with the space station or any other object suitably equipped. Until a couple of years ago, the Soyuz capsule had usually docked at the aft end of the Svesta model, which had been the tail of the ISS. More recently, a new module called the Hub had been attached to the Svesta, extending the main axis of the space station rearward and providing the axle around which the Taurus revolved. In order to maintain compatibility with its ubiquitous and time-tested Soyuz, the hub had been equipped with a suitable port and hatch. Since the other eleven were busy with the tasks that Sparky had given them, Dinah floated aft down the whole length of Izzy, for her shop was attached to its forward end and opened the docking hatch to greet the new arrivals. She was expecting to see a few humans floating free in the orbital module of the newly arrived Soyuz. Instead, she saw the head and arm of a single cosmonaut, whom she vaguely recognized as Maxim Koshalev. He was embedded in a nearly solid mass of vitamins. Vitamins was a term of art used by spaceflight geeks to mean any small, lightweight stuff of extraordinary value. Microchips, medicine, spare parts, ukuleles, biological samples, soap, and food all fell under the general heading of vitamins. Humans, of course, were the most important vitamin of all, unless you were one of those who believed that all space exploration should be conducted by robots. Dinah had sat in many a conference where her colleagues in asteroid mining industry had argued passionately passionately that rockets, which were so expensive, should only be used to transport vitamins. Bulk materials, such as metals and water, should never be launched from the ground. They ought to be obtained from the billions of rocks that were wandering around in space already. A sealed box of hypodermic syringes tumbled out and caromed off her forehead, followed by a vac-packed bag of lithium hydroxide gravel, a bottle of morphine, a reel of surface-mount capacitors, and a rubber-banded bundle, rubber bundle of number two lead pencils, pre-sharpened. Once Dinah had pawed those out of the way, she was able to more fully take in the scene. Maxim jammed into a narrow, human-sized tunnel through a mass of vitamins that had been packed into the Soyuz until it couldn't hold any more. This has been episode one of Neil Stevenson's fascinating science fiction work, Seven Eves. A novel. Neil Stevenson is an American writer from Seattle, Washington. This book was published in 2015 and it was from HarperCollins Publishers, the copy that I've been looking at. If you're interested, pick up the book. 
uh, to read the rest. I will continue as far as I can into the story with future episodes. So stay tuned for that. And I hope that you've enjoyed this first reading. It's been a very long one, but uh, very satisfying. And (laughs) alas, I'm only on page 40 out of a novel that is... Oh, 850-something pages? Don't worry, it goes quickly as soon as the story starts to get more underway. I'm very curious to see what happens to the people on the space station and to the people of Earth as the pieces of the moon, the now eight sisters, start to break up further. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this and... Please subscribe so you can hear the rest as we go along further in the future. This has been Angela Veneziano. Any comments or questions, you can always email me at angelaveneziano at yahoo.com. I'll put that up in uh, in the information for this podcast. And in the meantime, everyone, have a wonderful, wonderful day. Have a fantastic week. And we'll be in touch very soon in the next episode of Passive Listening for Active Minds. Thank you.